Welcome back to another episode of Archives of Fabella. The second era in Fabella's history is the Civilization Age. This is where early people developed the foundations that later technologies are built on. Stuff like writing, huts, and farming all originate here. Magic is in the world, but it's not understood very well. Today, we are going to be tracking the development of two hugely important historical events. The domestication of dogs and the birth of the wheel. Now, there are dog people and there are cat people, but the one thing dogs have over cats is their major contribution to history and human development. When they domesticated dogs, early hunters found that they brought home more food, which in turn greatly aided in the spread of humans across the globe. That bond you share with your pet goes back thousands of years. There's a reason dogs are man's best friend. We always get to the boy and his dog story. But I want to tell the girl and her dog story. Buckle up, because we're in for something really special. I'm Dylan Foley, and this is Archives of Fabella. Beyond our world, there is love. Beyond our world, there is war. Beyond our world, there is life. Beyond our world, there is Fabella. Five hundred FY Fabella year equal to thirty five oh one BC Earth year. Since the dawn of Fabella, trolls called the jagged coastline of Adele home. Trolls were halflings, no taller than five feet or so. Hair in a variety of colors grew all over their little bodies. Even the female tresses grew layers of hair in every color of the rainbow, combined with their pronounced forehead, small noses, and big eyes. Their most unique physical feature was their feet, which doubled as a second set of hands capable of grasping objects and hanging from trees. One of these trolls was Mosa. The red hair layering her little body flew behind her as she ascended the hill outside her hut to gather food. Her stubby fingers tore off every ripe piece of fruit from branches in her path. The tough, leathery soles of her feet helped her climb up the trees further than most animals in the area could reach. Any piece of sustenance that she could get her hands on landed in her basket. She only paused to unstrap her infant daughter from her back and tend to the baby's needs. Mosa kept at her task until the basket was too heavy to lift. She had the energy to do more, but without any way to transport produce heavier than she could lift, Mosa had to head back to her family village stationed at the foot of Mount Caban. 
Northeast Adele, where her people constructed the sleepy community of Sacy, was home to a temperate rainforest environment. Soil around the base of Mount Kabam was rich and perfect for growing crops. Its position near fresh water also made the lush region ideal for a settlement. The troll people of Sacy couldn't hope for a better setup. Mosa's infant daughter, Lou, squirmed around in the pouch strapped to her mother's back, trying to free herself. Mosa reached behind her to tickle Lou's itty-bitty toes behind her back in an effort to comfort the little girl as she migrated through the group of huts thatched with grass. A pair of troll hunters passed by her, carrying some bones for a meal to discard in the communal garbage dump. Mosa also passed by two trolls working beside a hut, threshing grain with sticks, repeatedly lifting it to allow the fine, wispy materials to blow away in the breeze. Baby Lou continued to squirm on her mother's back. Nothing in Fabella, not even food, was as important as making sure her little girl grew up safe and strong. Such parental responsibility was lost on Dusan, her mate, who had sired many children and did not feel a single ounce of attachment to any of them. Mosa would certainly be the only parental figure Lou was likely to know, and she was bent on fulfilling that role at any cost. I just fed you. Mosa scolded her daughter, knowing the girl was still too young to respond. What got you so antsy? A peal of thunder sent shockwaves over the troll village of Sacy. The sky darkened over Mosa as clouds blocked out the clear blue sky strewn with stars. This was the largest clap of thunder she'd ever heard. Everyone stopped what they were doing and looked up into the sky. No rain, no flash of lightning greeted them. This was not a storm. It was something far worse. The entire side of Mount Kabam exploded. A river of lava flowed down the slope, igniting every tree and shrub that stood in its way. The ground quaked under her feet as Mosa scrambled to race as fast as she could out of the village as magma slowly ate up the only home she knew. Ash rained down, getting stuck in her red hair and obscuring her vision. Lou started coughing under the punishing cloud of complete and utter devastation. Thinking fast, Mosa tore Lou off her back and held the baby close to her chest. She covered Lou's face with fabric from her dress made of hippogriff hide. A cave loomed before her. It was the only piece of shelter that could safeguard Mosa against the punishing eruption. Several trolls were already inside the cave. There was just enough room for Mosa to squeeze inside as the horrifying dark cloud of mayhem swept over them. Mosa wandered around the powdery gray jungle floor, which used to be so full of life. Some of her best friends became frozen lifeless statues under piles of ash. She wandered through the scorched forest, which used to be so full of fruit, ripe for the picking. Orange peels littered the ground. Barren stems poked up from the ash. Squashed berries rotted under her feet, and bugs searched for non-existent food. 
She didn't know why she continued searching around the hellish blackened land she used to call home with an empty basket. At this point, it was more out of duty to her people than anything else, but she felt that her newborn daughter required more of her attention than looking for some food. Mosa's tribe found shelter in a shallow cave on the southern edge of the region. With little to buffer against the elements, Mosa and the remaining citizens of former Seisi were thrust into a precarious existence. Trolls argued amongst themselves over whether they could stay or go. As a female Tress, Mosa had no say in the matter. The right choice was obviously to leave Matkaban behind. There was nothing for them anymore. The longer they stayed, the closer to death every single one of them would be. The troll hunters in her company made spears from antlers and sticks, tipped with sharp rocks as they went out to hunt for non-existent wild game. This was an age of a life and death contest for survival with other beasts, requiring ingenuity and dexterity. Foraging no longer provided enough food to sustain them. Instead, they had to hunt the herds of large animals. Dangerous work for many trolls. Moso followed the troll hunters around on their expedition, hoping to score a bit of food that she could use to settle her grumbling stomach. That day, the hunters were after smaller game. At dawn's early light, before the outside temperature could climb too high, the tribe left the protection of the cave to check on a trap set the day before. They clothed themselves in the furs and hides of different animals, sewn together with needles fashioned from small animal bones. This being the humid tropics, there wasn't much call for heavy clothing. Everything they wore was fashioned to be light and breathable. Mosa wore her normal large brown strip of hippogriff hide and a grass skirt. She cut a hole in the hide large enough for her head and the excess material reached all the way down to her waist. The sides were sewn together, leaving enough room for her bare arms to reach for rare clumps of natural produce along the way. The group walked silently over the powdery gray ground until they reached patches of exposed dirt and wet ground, where paw prints had been seen the day before. They walked in single file, always watchful for danger that may lurk ahead from a larger predator or the appearance of opportunity in the form of a carcass left behind. Mosa forged along the way. She was lucky enough to find berries and gathered them into her basket. At the trap, they rejoiced to see that they'd successfully snared a huspalum. Huspalum were ape-like species with large craniums. A huspalum's arms were longer than its legs. When extended, the common huspalum's long arms spanned one and a half times the three-foot height. The female was slightly shorter and thinner than the male, but had longer limbs. In trees, both genders climbed with their long, powerful arms. On the ground, huspalum usually knuckle-walked or walked on all fours, clenching their fists and supporting themselves on their knuckles. Their heads were solid bone and so thick that the Huspalum could swing from trees and launch themselves head first at advancing predators. Mosa had seen many hunters die from being headbutt by the ape and was glad to see this one was dead. They brought the animal back to their camp at the mouth of the cave, where they skinned it and placed the raw flesh over a fire. There was barely enough meat to go around all the hunters. Musa was able to get a little bit by offering to trade with the youngest boy of the group. 
He gave her half of his share in exchange for a handful of raspberries Mosa had been fortunate enough to find. It was an even trade, and she was happy to make it. Mosa set Lou down on the ground while she dug into her pouch for the raspberries. As she was about to drop them into the boy's outstretched hands, the boy's eyes suddenly widened in horror. All the other troll hunters suddenly became deathly quiet as well. Following their gaze, Mosa spun around to see a snarling Alfin crouched directly over Lou. Canine Alfins shared many characteristics with the Griffin family, including the scaly, eagle-like forelegs and sharp, beady eyes. Commonly associated with fire, the Alfin's flowing yellow mane and tufts of yellow in its orange body made it look as though the canine beast was indeed on fire as it snarled over the newborn baby. This Alfin was a female vixen. She bared her teeth in a low, threatening growl. Lou was still alive and well, but it was clear to Mosa that she had just interrupted the female canine before it tore into the infant. The hunters behind Mosa picked up their spears, ready to strike the beast down. Mosa motioned for them to get back. If they acted too soon, they could spook the Alfin and inadvertently cause the canine to sink its teeth into Lou. The boy whom Mosa had traded with suddenly launched himself at the Alfin. The Alfin turned her attention to the boy, rearing back on her hind legs and digging her dark claws into his neck. Mosa dove forward to scoop up Lou. The Alfin had just enough time to snap the boy's neck before hunters threw their spears at the wild beast. The Alfin vixen scampered into the forest of blackened trees and out of sight. The boy lay dead at Mosa's feet in a pool of his own blood. A few days later, the Ravenea tribe of goblins who always came up north to trade finally appeared. This annual joining of two very different tribes had always been the occasion for much celebration. The nomadic goblins always brought fantastic artifacts from other tribes they traded with up and down the island. They dragged their goods on sleds, fashioned from fallen palm trees. Mosa was well acquainted with the use of these sleds. The trolls of Sacy had used sleds on a daily basis to transport their produce. It was backbreaking work. Mosa wished that there would be an easier way to move large amounts of material. Her high spirits plummeted when she saw the sad state of the goblin tribe. They were worse off than the trolls. Some type of fierce predator must have viciously assaulted the tribe because every one of the goblins sported bruises up and down their dark green bodies. Furs were ripped. Jewelry was missing. Pieces of broken vases littered their sleds. It only got worse when they demanded food as payment for their goods. Food the trolls couldn't part with. Have a heart. The troll chief tried appealing to Chief Lazareth, the goblin leader. Food is scarce. There is only enough fruit on the land that has been spared to get us through the season. Not my problem, spat Lazarus. You should move your settlement. This was not the first time the idea of leaving had been brought up. Mosa's chief put his foot down and said the same thing he always did. 
Our families have lived and died here. This is our land. We aren't leaving it. Musa spied an odd contraption behind the goblins. It was a large, circular wooden disc attached to a woven basket. What is that? Lazareth dove in front of the contraption to hide it from view. That is not for sale. But what is it? Repeated Mosa. Stay out of this, hissed the chief out of the corner of his mouth. You know how much we need this trade. Kind Rosanna, Lazareth's wife, stepped forward. Mosa had seen her many times before. The goblinness had always been one to clothe herself in the finest furs and necklaces from tribes all over the island. Whoever or whatever assaulted the goblin tribe had taken her precious materials, leaving her with only a blanket to drape over her naked body. It's a wheel. Hush, fired back Lazarus. Rosanna would not be dissuaded so easily. What's the harm in telling them? It is too dangerous, snapped Lazarus. If the humans found out, it would be the end of us. We can't sacrifice everything we've done for this doomed colony. What happened? Speaking up earned Mosa immediate withering looks from all the trolls in attendance, causing her to shrink back into the crowd. Last Hariosh season, we came across a human village in the west called Araku, began Rosanna. They developed this disc they called a wheel to help them transport their food quicker and easier than using sleds. Chopping down trees and moving a sled laden with food over the logs was a technique used throughout the island. It was hard work, made more difficult by the uneven forest floor and the close proximity of tree trunks and giant flower stems. The troll's size made it more difficult to do such work. That was why they had to develop their talent with agriculture. The rich soil at the foot of Mount Kabam provided the richest farmland that they had ever come across. Now it was all gone. Naturally, we wanted to see what this new wheel was. We tried approaching a small group of women about it, but they ran away. Then my husband... Rosanna rolled her eyes. In his infinite wisdom, had the bright idea to try stealing the wheel. Well, you can assume how embarrassing it was for the Eriku men to emerge from the jungle to see us with their precious- You're not telling it right, shouted Lazarus. I was there. I know what happened. Well, I don't see you telling the story, shot back Rosanna. I'm the one telling it, and I'll continue as I see fit. Lazarus launched into a dramatic retelling of his version of the story. Men and women, great and small, strong and weak. Oh, get on with it, groaned Rosanna. Don't rush me. Lazarus went back to his story. They were all using this device called a weed. Will, corrected Rosanna. That's what I said. Lazareth continued as if his wife had never interrupted him. We were looking at the weed, minding our own business, when a bunch of men attacked us for no reason. A goblin male held up a hand missing three digits. They cut off my fingers. They broke my nose, cried another goblin. And they set fire to my beard, finished Lazareth. 
His beard will never be the same. Echoed Rosanna. It used to reach all the way down to my feet. Now look at it. Lazareth gestured to his dirty brown locks. It won't even reach down to my belly button. Mosa no longer cared how anybody looked at her. If the humans used the wheel to transport their food, it stood to reason that the trolls could utilize it as well to enhance their farming technique. The wheel could possibly extend their territory and make it easier to carry more produce. It could save the beleaguered tribe from certain ruin. What happened next? Mosa asked. Oh, we spent the entire season trying to barter with them. Lazareth measured his beard as if to judge whether it had grown at all since he checked it last. These humans are very protective of their weed. They're tired of being weak. The wheel is the first major advantage they've had, argued Rosanna. We'd do the same thing. So you traded with them and the humans let you have the wheel, concluded Mosa. Rosanna nodded. I cost us all our food and most of our clothing to do it. The trade between the humans of Eriku and the Goblin Ravenea tribe was obviously not meant to benefit them. Depriving them of all their food was an indirect way of killing off their kind. Mosa wondered if Lazareth and Rosanna knew this. They must have thought that they could replenish their food supply by trading with Nsaisi. Unfortunately, Mount Kabam's eruption put an end to that idea. Without trading with the goblins, there was no way the trolls could survive. Every tribe that dealt with them might now be in jeopardy. The trolls needed wheels to expand their farmland, but the goblins staunchly refused to part with their own wheels, even when confronted with the truth that the trolls would die of starvation. They needed the wheel. Where can we find Eriku? Demanded Mosa. Enough! Barked Lazareth. If humans found out that we told you about the weed, they would slaughter our whole tribe. Right, said the troll chief with a nod. We could make our own wheels, but it's too dangerous. Mount Kabam's eruption has crippled us. We are weak people and do not need to make any more enemies. Mosa wasn't afraid of the humans. Just because one human might see them using the wheel was no reason not to attempt making it for themselves. But... I won't endanger the lives of my tribe. We can live without the wheel. Spat the troll chieftain of Sacy. Forget about it. Mosa couldn't forget. Her interest was piqued the moment she saw the wheel attached to the basket. There were so many things they could do with it. Somewhere in the west lurked a human settlement capable of saving the tribe from famine. It was obvious from their lack of interest that nobody else in the village took talk of the wheel seriously. They refused to think about how big a problem the lack of food could be for everyone. How would baby Lou fare if Mosa could no longer provide the nutrients she needed to survive? Something had to be done. As much as Mosa wanted to set out for permission to use the wheel, she couldn't do it alone. She didn't know the way. She needed a companion to protect her and Lou from harm. None of the trolls would entertain the idea of seeking the wheel, nor would any of the goblins, except one.
Rosanna brought up the wheel in the first place, most logically assumed that she knew the way to the human settlement. Speaking to Chief Lazareth's wife would require some finesse, as the hunters of both tribes would surely put a stop to Mosa's admittedly dangerous quest. Lazareth seemed to sense Mosa's intent, because he wouldn't leave Rosanna's company. A chance to speak with her didn't come until the sour goblin leader fell asleep. Mosa crept up behind Rosanna in the dead of night. Where is Eriku? Rosanna turned to face Mosa and smiled. You're the girl who spoke up earlier. I have a child who desperately needs to be fed. Mosa gestured to the sleeping, malnourished Lou cradled in her arms. We won't make it through the season with the food we have left. Humans aren't so weak, dear. They are stronger than we would like to think. Rosanna scrutinized Mosa for a moment. Could you really put that child of yours through the pain of losing a mother? Please. Tears welled up in Mosa's eyes. You have to help. Not sure if they'll let you have it. But I must agree, the wheel is your only hope. So you'll come with me? Asked Bosa hopefully. No. Her spirit plummeted. You must. Don't tell me what I have to do. Snapped Rosanna. I have Lazareth for that. Lazareth emitted a loud snore. Me 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 I quite like being alive, and I am not in any hurry to end it. How will I make it to the settlement? Walk that way. Rosanna jabbed her finger west. You're bound to run into it eventually. I have my daughter with me. We need some type of protection. Oh, I wouldn't bring that infant with you, dear. She'll only slow you down. I have to. Mosa held Lou closer to her chest. There's no one else I can leave her with. What about the father? Dead. Mosa tried appealing to Rosanna's sympathetic nature. He fell victim to the volcanic eruption not long ago. Her lie, seeing as Lou's father had been out of the picture long before the eruption, hit its mark. Come, I may be able to provide you with a guardian for your quest. Rosanna led Mosa to the goblin campsite in the trees. Several assorted goblins lay sleeping around the fire. The Ravenea tribe always brought the most fantastic beast to trade with the neighboring villages on their nomadic trek through the valley. She pointed to a palm tree. There, tethered securely under the draping branches, was the same Alfin that mauled the troll boy just the day before. Mosa recognized the mark of a spear still oozing blood on the canine's muzzle. The vixen recognized Mosa too, as she growled in her direction. The beast's black eyes centered on Lou, cradled in her mother's arms. We caught this one yesterday, said Rosanna as she cautiously approached the proud beast. Few will care if she happens to accidentally break free. Elephants have an incredible sense of smell. One whiff of something from a human village of Eriku will be enough for her to guide you. I would just keep her at a distance. She's a wild one. 
The elephant vixen was hardly the guardian Mosa was expecting, but she didn't have the opportunity to be selective about the matter. I'll take her. It took the intrepid explorers several long, arduous days to make it over the massive mountain range. The Sisi people called the mountain range the Great Silvers because of the colossal peak's grey rocky exterior. They had these mountains to thank for keeping many vicious monsters at bay. When they finally made it down the Great Silvers rocky slopes and into the dense jungle, Musa couldn't help feeling a wonderful sense of empowerment. She never knew Fabella passed Mount Kabam. It had never entered her mind that there could possibly be rolling hills filled with flowers, blooming every color of the rainbow, and rivers so clear that she could see her reflection. Musa had absolutely no idea where she was going and loved every moment. She tried heading southwest, down toward where the cluster of rocks made a mountain that looked like a hand, but Nash led her northwest instead, to where two rivers met. Mosa tugged on the rope and called Nash south. Nash refused to move. The elephant sniffed at the flowers and tossed her flowing orange head north. Mosa tugged on the rope again. Nash bared her teeth with a low growl. Faced with the frightening aspect of being mauled to death, Mosa decided to continue her expedition to the northwest. It went on like that for the rest of the day. Nash pulled Mosa throughout the valley, continually sniffing at every blade of grass and flower petal drifting in the air. It didn't take long for Mosa to recognize that Nash had picked up a scent and was following it across the valley. She had no idea what the scent was, or where Nash was pulling her. Hopefully, it would be toward Eriku. Just because Musa's status relegated her to a life of gathering fruit didn't mean she couldn't hunt. Mastering the skill of trapping any animal was necessary for one's continued survival. Musa preferred the well-laid trap to an outright attack because she had Lou with her. Nash had to be tied to a tree out of fear that she would bolt if allowed the tiniest bit of slack. Tracks led her to a mouse deer's burrow. Mouse deer were just as their name said they were. These small varmints were about a foot tall with big mouse ears and spindly legs like a deer. They were small, but a good meal for one person if you could catch them. 
A strong vine, acting as the perfect snare and strategically positioned over the opening, caught the little varmints as they poked their stubby little antler heads out. Thorny bushes had to be positioned around the campsite to keep out nasty jungle creatures. Mutha drove her crude stone side scraper into the mouse deer's fur pelt. She looked up at Nash, whose head lay depressingly on the ground. The elfin companion may have had a particularly vicious reputation, but she led Mosa this far and deserved some food to keep her strength. Mosa stripped off a sizable piece of meat. It was more than she intended to give, but she tossed it to Nash anyway. Nash recoiled at this unexpected display of gratitude. She eyed Mosa suspiciously. This had to be some type of cruel trick. Mosa turned away to Nurse Lou. Nash was welcome to dine on the meal whenever she wanted. The mouse deer meat was still there after she finished nursing Lou. It was still untouched by the time Mosa got a fire started. It still remained when she awoke in the middle of the night to hear screaming. She thought it had come from baby Lou, but she was still fast asleep. Then it became apparent that the screams were coming from around the campsite. It was too dark to see who was making the noise. Fleeting glimpses of disproportionately large heads atop small hairy bodies in the waning orange light of the fire and passing lights overhead led her to believe they must be some type of mammal, most likely a pack of villi. Villi were foul creatures with ugly green bodies and stringy brown hair that allowed them to blend in with the environment. Every one of them had row upon row of razor sharp teeth. They roamed in packs, teaming up to take down large predators, and they were hungry. Mosa picked up a side scraper and her spear, the only weapons she carried with her, and listened to the sound of all the advancing beasts trying to judge which direction they were coming from. Swarms of Vili dropped down from the trees. One landed right on top of Mosa. The primate's dark fingers scraped against her face. She grabbed it by the hindquarters and hurled the accursed creature back into the dark forest. Mosa whirled around to see two Vilis looming over Lou. Several more Vili jumped atop Mosa, tackling her to the forest floor. The side scraper went flying. The spear was tugged from her grasp. Mosa tried fighting the vile creatures off, but it was no use. For every one she kicked away, another two took its place. She could hear Lou's wails of terror mixed in with the Vili's screeches. Then another voice rang out in the night. <laughs> Nash's deep roar silenced the Vilis. She broke free of her rope and bounded into the middle of the fight, ferociously swiping away at anything that moved. The Vilis immediately dropped Lou and skippered her way into the night with Nash in hot pursuit. Mosa raced to pick up her screaming daughter, holding Lou as close to her breast as possible. She didn't sleep at all for the rest of the night. Early in the morning, when the first signs of daybreak appeared, Nash came back. The elephant gave no sign that she noticed Mosa as she slowly plodded to the mouse deer meat and gobbled it up. Nash moved away from the campsite, heading west. Mosa followed her at a safe distance. She no longer had a rope to tether the dog to. Nash kept a steady pace throughout the day, leading Mosa down a riverbank. 
By midday, they ascended a steep cliff overlooking a set of violent rapids. Here, the water moved so quickly downstream that the little Azray, water fairies, had difficulty battling against the current as it relentlessly pummeled their little bodies without mercy. Nash ventured closer to the cliff's edge than Mosa thought safe. Suddenly, the ground beneath the elephant's feet gave away. Nash yelped as she lost her footing. Mosa dove to catch Nash by the tail. Her fingers slipped against the animal's glossy orange coat. She readjusted her grip to Nash's right hind leg, where a tighter grip could be maintained. It took some time, but Mosa mustered enough strength to pull Nash to safety. They looked each other in the eyes for what felt like an eternity. Nash tenderly licked at the V-Life scratches on Mosa's cheek, cleaning them with her rough tongue. Mosa picked out burrs that had gotten trapped in Nash's orange coat and one particularly nasty bug that appeared to be suckling her blood. Nash continued up the cliff, taking great care to walk a little further from the edge now that she knew how dangerous it could be. Mosa shifted Lou to rest on her chest in order to give her back a little break. She caught sight of a shattered clay pot hidden in the brush. Closer examination proved that it was goblin-made. The truth suddenly dawned on her. Nash was leading her along the Ravenea tribe's path, the same path leading to Eraku. An impatient bark ripped Mosa's eyes away from the pot. Nash stopped up ahead. Mosa strode up to Nash. The Alphan would not move until she drew even. They continued on, not as master and pet, but as companions. Mosa climbed the hill overlooking Eraku to see a sprawling colony hugging the shores of a lake. Smoke billowed out of their huts and blackened animal meat hung over their fires. Assorted stone tools tore into the rich soil and children played along the rolling hills. These humans had chosen well, close to fresh water, lots of wheat, and excellent sources of vegetation not far away. The area, nice and open, allowed them to see predators coming for miles. She wished her tribal forefathers had chosen this territory instead. Humans were just as strong as elves. They were only treated as a lower class of animal because they lacked the elves' superior hearing and agility. This particular settlement had made a remarkably strong colony for themselves, so close to the Gulf of Adele. Nash's whole body tensed up at the sight of the human settlement. Mosa nodded to her canine companion. Yep, I'm scared too. Frightened or not, Mosa had a job to do. Making sure Baby Lou was securely situated on her back, she ventured into the camp. It was hard not to notice the number of eyes watching her every move. If this settlement was anything like her tribes, the chieftain's quarters would be toward the center. She would have to march there to find the leader. On her way, she caught sight of a wheelbarrow laden with succulent fruits and vegetables from the nearby jungle. 
The goblins' feeble imitation with their wheel attached to a basket paled in comparison to the human's superior hollowed-out tree trunk fixed on an elegantly crafted wooden wheel. Musa's eyes followed the spinning wheel as its human master piloted it through the camp. It was more than just a technological leap forward. It was a masterpiece. Ahem. Musa snapped out of her trance just in time to realize that she was about to touch the wheel. She looked up to see a boy with a floral crown cocked to one side, towering over her with an ugly black-haired girl on his arm. Who are you? Inquired the boy. Nash bared her teeth. Men seized their weapons and women jumped back with ear-piercing wails. Stop. Musa held up her hand to the spear tips and bamboo arrows surrounding her. I trust this animal with my child's life. She poses no threat to any of you. Put down your weapons. The boy gave a curt nod with his sharp chin and his brothers lowered their spears. Nash still maintained her defensive stance her tail rigid and her lips curled back into a low snarl. The boy's fingers smoothed the peach fuzz on his upper lip. Come to my tent. Mosa didn't make a move. I'm looking for your chief. I am he. My tent. Now. Ordered the boy chieftain. Bring the alphan. Mosa expected someone a bit older. The young Arakun chieftain looked like he was about 13 years old, still too young to even grow a beard. Regardless, he carried himself with a proud sense of maturity beyond his years. The boy chieftain escorted Mosa into his tent and introduced himself as Chief Shus of the Araku tribe. Mosa had to bite her lip to keep from laughing. What has brought you here? My tribe has lost much of our farmland due to Mount Kabam's eruption in the north. I come to seek the secret to your wheel. His eyes narrowed. And how could our wheel help you? Our remaining food is too far away from camp. The distance is killing us. If we just had your wheels, we could transport more food quicker and easier. The wheel is our most cherished asset. Shoes pissed around his tent. I'm sure you're aware that my people are viewed as weak. I am. My tribe is treated poorly by other people as well," said Mosa desperately trying to strike up a deal based on common ground. Ah, so you can relate. My wheel is the only thing we have to prove we're not animals. Shus tossed an apple to Mosa, which she graciously accepted. We have to protect it. Mosa suddenly became very nervous. Shus went on as he dined on an apple of his own. The only reason you're not dead is because you have that beast. Nash sat vigilantly next to Mosa, confident and proud. Alphans are a vicious canine race. Once domesticated, they could be quite beneficial to our hunters. Shoes got down to business. So here's the deal. Show me how to train Alphans, and you can have my wheel. Train them? Mosa thought of Nash as an equal, not a trained pet. Is there anything else I can do? That's my offer. Take it or we'll cook the baby over the fire. Threatened Shoes. Mosa had no choice but to agree. Wild elephants apparently caused the human settlement much distress by killing their young and absconding with meat in the night. The young chief was hell-bent on training Vilbella's canines for his tribe's use, with little success. Sinogriffins flew too fast to be caught, but wrong were too fierce. Sea wolves were confined to the water. All things considered, domesticating the alphan was the best option. 
They were skilled hunters, swift and courageous, and would help the humans achieve a foothold in the valley. Humans had been stuck with the untamed wild animals of Abella for far too long, and Shoes was dead set on ending that foul tradition. Mosa got the uneasy feeling that she was about to help a very powerful species become supreme rulers of the valley, but she had no choice in the matter. Chief Shoes was an odd boy to work for. Insects seemed to be quite at home crawling around his face. He bragged about his beard that was really just a thin layer of peach fuzz, and the crown of bright yellow flower petals on his head drooped over his face. There was something vaguely menacing about the smile that he occasionally flashed. She'd top it off. Every time Mosa turned her back, another anonymous girl was draped over his shoulder. Shoes dumped three captured alfin pups in front of Mosa. Begin. Mosa had no clue how to train the trio of alphans. Despite appearances, Nash was not domesticated. She had simply learned to care for Mosa enough not to bite her head off. These new alphan pups had been badly abused. Nash rushed forward to lick the wounds of her brethren. Mosa's heart ached for the poor creatures. Their only mistake had been picking the wrong tribe to steal food from. Everybody was hungry. No one, man nor beast, should be sentenced to a lifetime of servitude for trying to survive. I need food, said Mosa. Shoes folded his arms. After you domesticate them. You want my help? Then get me something with meat, Mosa demanded. For someone who claimed not to have enough food to share, Shoes had his daily girlfriend fetch a cooked carcass amazingly fast. Mosa stripped off five sections of meat from the carcass. Three went to the alphans, and two went to Nash. The three young alphans quickly gobbled up their meat. Nash nudged her pieces over to them as a mother would. What was the point of that? Demanded Shoes. Earning their trust. Mosa walked away. Shoes rushed to intercept her. Where are you going? To sit by the fire. It's getting cold. Shoes planted his feet, refusing to let her pass. Not so fast. We had a deal. Which I am trying to do, but it's not going to happen overnight. It takes time. How much? Asked Shoes. Mosa pulled a date out of thin air. A couple days. You'd better not be trying to buy time. Why would I do that? I'm trying to get back to my tribe before they all starve. Snapped Mosa. Nothing is more important than saving everyone I love. Nash treated the abused alphans like her own pups. Most days were spent licking their slow healing wounds and helping them gain the strength to run again. Mosa did what she could to nurse them back to health, but the bulk of that duty was Nash's. Shoes grudgingly allowed her to sit by Eriku's bonfire, but he forbade any food to touch her lips. How did your people invent the wheel? My people had nothing to do with it. I'm the one who came up with the idea. 
Somehow, Mozart got the feeling that Schutz was taking credit for something he hadn't actually done, but she wasn't about to voice her disagreement with him anytime soon. We used to transport large quantities of our food over sleds, rolling them over tree trunks. We do the same thing. Mosa briefly reflected on her tribe's attempts at picking up log after log, moving them over the land to get a sled laden with food back to camp. Well, I noticed the sled was leaving marks in the wood. Schuess dug his nail into two sides of a stick to illustrate his point. Two circular patterns were left on the sides of the tree, bordering the outside of the sled. I hacked away one piece and made a wheel. It was that simple? Schuess tossed a stick into the fire. That simple. It took more than a couple days for the elfin pups to come around. Schuth refused to take any more food out of his people's mouths, so Mosa had to go out every morning with Nash to hunt for wild game. Hunting with Nash by her side was remarkably easier than hunting by herself. She could see why Schuth wanted to domesticate elfins. What would have taken her a full day of hunting lasted only into the wee hours of the morning. Nash's sensitive nose picked up a scent of wild varmints scurrying across the ground and killed enough food to feed herself, Mosa, Lou, and the alvin pups. Only enough game to feed those she cared about. Never more. Slowly but surely, the young elephants were beginning to exhibit domestic characteristics. They would now sit on command and fetch discarded sticks. Mosa thought the amount of progress was outstanding. Shoes could not be less impressed. They can fetch and sit? How can that be the only progress you've made? Demanded Shoes. When are they going to be trained? In a couple days. You said that weeks ago. Spat Shoes. All I'm doing is treating them like equals. You can take it from here. I need my wheel. That wasn't our deal. Sneered Shoes. I have to get back to my tribe. So leave, but you won't set foot outside this camp with a wheel, I promise you that. Shoes towered over Mosa. If I find out your tribe is using my wheels, my people will roast every single one of your brethren over the fire, starting with your daughter. Understand? Mosa's blood boiled with the deepest loathing possible. Yes. Shoes's evil eyes narrowed. Good. The next morning, Mosa awoke to find that Nash wasn't sleeping by her side as usual. Baby Lou thumped on her back as she hopped around the camp, looking for any sign of Nash. Only strands of her orange hair and paw prints in the rich soil were left behind. The proud Alvin was gone. A loud roar rang out. It wasn't the call of an elfin. This roar belonged to something much larger and fiercer. Every part of her body begged Mosa to stay put, except for her heart. She ran as fast as possible, in the direction of the beast's terrifying howl. Her mind was only on Nash. Not even the squirming baby on her back punctured the bubble of her mind, consumed with worry over Nash's well-being. The bushes ahead of her rustled violently. Mosa froze. A black beak emerged from the thicket of overgrown leaves. Mosa stumbled back in terror as she caught sight of the oblong head layered with feathers. 
Small eyes blinked in her direction as a large, scaly foot landed in the fresh mud. The most feared monster in all the jungle stood right before her. It was a cockatrice. Rising at a full height of about 12 feet, cockatrices were swift, agile, flightless, bird-dragon hybrids. They weren't the largest predators of the jungle. With the unmatched speed, intellect, and power, there was no reason for them to add size to that list. They roamed in packs of about three to five, with one alpha male. The cockatrice in front of Mosa was a female. She didn't know much about cockatrice behavior out in the wild, but she knew the alpha male always dined first. The rogue female herded the small troll through the thicket where the rest of the pack waited for her. Chief Shoes cowered against a tree, surrounded by the other female cockatrices, all waiting for the alpha. Mosa slipped and fell on the wet grass as she raced to Shusa's side, shielding a wailing Lou from the monstrous avian reptile surrounding them. Nash was still nowhere to be seen. The thud of a thick, scaly foot hitting the hard, unforgiving ground announced the arrival of the Alpha. The male cockatrice rose out of the thick foliage. He towered above the females in his pack. His beak clicked with anticipation of ripping into the prey before him. Chief Shoes always put up an intimidating front, but Mosa had never seen him so scared as a young teen trembled with fright in the face of this intimidating creature. The alpha male advanced on Mosa and Shoes. He reared back, preparing to strike. <laughs> A proud roar suddenly rang out. Musa only saw a blur of orange fly through the air. One of the female cockatrices shrieked as razor-sharp talons dug into their neck. The commotion distracted the alpha male, calling his attention to the canine rushing through the tall grass. Nash bounded in front of Mosa. She caught so much air that when she pushed off the ground, it was almost like she could fly. The female cockatrices in the pack tried to charge toward Nash, but the alpha male clicked at them to get back. The male's small, unblinking eyes centered on Nash. He wanted her for himself. Nash growled at the alpha male, ready to pounce any second. She barked madly at him to retreat. It didn't do any good. The alpha's tail whipped behind him as he surveyed Nash for a moment. When his tail stiffened and his rigid body dipped low, Mosa knew that he was about to attack. Nash struck first. She leapt toward the alpha male with her talons outstretched. The two beasts collided in a frenzied mass of rage. Both of them struck so fast, Mosa couldn't tell who did what. Nash kept trying to bite the alpha male cockatrice in the neck, but he pushed her away. The sheer size of the cockatrice gave it an immediate advantage, but Nash was undaunted. She kept striking, refusing to give up. Even for an instant, Nash caught a claw in the side of her cheek, just grazing against the side of her eye. Crimson blood flew through the air, but Mosa couldn't tell who it belonged to. The alpha male tried several times to grab Nash around the back with his short, stubby forearms, but the canine's glossy orange coat prevented it from finding a hold. 
Chief Shoes tugged on Mosa's arm, attempting to lead her away from the ongoing fight, but Mosa stayed put. She couldn't leave Nash, not in this desperate hour. Not ever. The alpha male cockatrice finally grabbed hold of Nash. He threw her with all his might against a tree. Nash hit the rough bark so hard she left a mark. She crumpled to the hard ground. Her chest rose and fell as she struggled to catch her breath. She tried to stand, but the pain caused by the severe hit was too much and she fell back down to the ground. The alpha male stalked toward Nash, ready to finish the job. Mosa found a rock nearby her feet. She picked it up and hurled it at the alpha male. The rock arced perfectly through the air, striking the alpha male cockatrice in the back of the oblong head. The shrewd beast sprung around to track where the rock had come from. Nash only had a split second to act and took it. When the alpha male was distracted by Mosa, Nash sprang up to bite the cockatrice in the jugular. Blood erupted from the cockatrice's neck like a volcano. The alpha male stumbled back for a moment as if in a confused daze before flopping down dead. It was over. The female cockatrice pack retreated into the jungle. Mosa rushed forward to scoop up a weak Nash and carry her back to the Araku settlement. Chief Shoes didn't say a word to her as they trekked back to the encampment. The elfin pups Mosa had been training rushed forward out of the thick foliage to meet the proud animal they recognized as their mother. Mosa set Nash down. Even in her weakened state, Nash tenderly nuzzled her head against the pups. It was okay. They were all going to be fine. Mosa looked up to see Chief Shoes standing frozen in front of a wheel on the edge of camp. He locked eyes with Mosa. A single tear fell down his cheek. He nodded toward the wheel and continued to camp. No words were exchanged between them. They were unnecessary. Mosa had Chief Shusa's permission to return home to Sacy and the Great Silver Mountains with the wheel. Her servitude was done, and she accomplished what she set out to do. Now it was time to return home. Nash slowly traveled by Mosa's side, the pups led their little pack, chasing fairies through the meadow. Before the volcano, Mosa was committed to leading life by herself with only her and Lou. That thought seemed so absurd now. Without the eruption of the volcano, she never would have undertaken this journey and formed a bond with Nash. The union between these companions was far more important to history than she realized. That's going to do it for us in this episode. Chief Shoes was played by Bill Pritchard. All other characters were voiced by Dylan Foley. Archives of Abella is created, hosted, and edited by Dylan Foley, with music by Garrett Ferris and audio blocks. As always, look outside of what is possible and think about what might be.